Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Israel's War with Hamas. We've recorded a series on the making of modern Israel, and it traces the history of Israel all the way up to modern times. But in light of recent events, it seemed good to take some time to focus on some of the key questions about what is happening in Israel after the attack by Hamas on October 7th, 2023. I'd like to answer some questions like, how did we get to this point? And who are the players in this particular battle, both the local players and the regional players? Why is this different than conflicts that have happened before in Israel? What happens next? And a question that many, many Christians are asking at this time is, is this a sign of the end times? And so let's dive in and take a look at the modern state of Israel. This is a simple map of what Israel looks like today. And the key locations about which we'll be talking are the territories that are often called occupied territories in the press, would be the Golan Heights, where Israel has maintained a presence in the high area between Syria and Israel, the West Bank, which we'll talk about in more detail later, and then the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is a strip of land about 25 miles long and approximately six miles wide, with about 2.3 million people living there. And in this war started in that particular area. But first, let's go back just a little bit and talk about how did we get here and who are the players in this drama. And so I'd like to take you back from October 7th of 2023 to October of 1973. You may remember that coming off the 1967 Six-Day War, when Israel had preemptively attacked its neighbors and had secured an area that would allow for its defense. Well, six years later, Israel found itself attacked on its holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. So the 1973 war is called the Yom Kippur War. It was a masterpiece of planning by Egypt and Syria to simultaneously invade Israel from the south and from the north in an attempt to restore the honor of the Arab nations after the defeat in 1967. Well, the surprise was almost total. And in the south, Anwar Sadat, whom you see in this slide, who was the head of Egypt at the time, took Israel by surprise. And at the same time, Hafez al-Assad, whom you see there, the head of Syria at the time, struck into the Golan Heights from the north. Israel was taken by surprise, and it was a close-run affair. It was touch-and-go for Israel for a number of days. This war's been detailed in a lot of memoirs. I particularly like Henry Kissinger's memoirs. In fact, he wrote a book specifically about the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And the insights into what happened in the process are fascinating and one would hope would teach some lessons for the future. But at the end of this battle, which ended up with Israel looking like it does today, 
But what it did was Anwar Sadat was able to restore the pride of the Arab people, and he used that to make peace with Israel six years later in 1979. Anwar Sadat is probably, in many people's estimation, one of the most, uh, one of the greatest statesmen of the 20th century. And he foresaw that if they could establish mutual respect, that he could lead his people forward into peace with Israel. Well, this led to some turbulent times because as a backlash against his willingness to establish some kind of peaceful relationship with Israel, you see the development of a number of terrorist organizations, organizations whose sole mission in life was to kill the Jews and reclaim the land of Israel for the Arab Muslim people. For example, Hezbollah came into being in Lebanon in 1982, and they exist there today. A few years later, in 1987, we see the formation of Hamas. Both of these are Islamic terrorist groups. Hezbollah has Shiite roots and is supported by Iran. Hamas has Sunni roots, but is also supported by Iran. And we'll talk about that dynamic in just a little bit. But through the 80s and the 90s, you began to see a backlash against what Egypt did. And you begin to see the formation of the Palestinian people as a people. Because at this time in history, when Hamas and Hezbollah were there, what you have in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are simply the people who were living there in the 67 war. The people in the West Bank were citizens of Jordan at that time. And so this people group has no unified identity. In a real sense, the Palestinian people come into existence with Yasser Arafat and his Palestinian Liberation Organization. He was successful in portraying to the world that these groups of people in Gaza and the West Bank were a people group and that he and his organization, his party, were the legitimate representatives of these Palestinian people. And so in a very real sense, what we think of today as the Palestinian people came about as Yasser Arafat began to unite their interests and became the spokesperson for them. The PLO, Yasser Arafat, were, were used terrorist tactics. And so there's a, a quite a history of back and forth with Israel from the West Bank and from Gaza. But in 1993, with the Oslo Accords, you see President Clinton basically helping to broker an agreement between the PLO and Israel. In that agreement, the PLO recognized Israel. This was a, a major move, recognized Israel in some sense as legitimate. And Israel began to commit in the West Bank and Gaza to give self-rule to the Palestinians under the PLO. They formed what became known today as the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority was originally the one who would begin the self-rule of the Palestinian people in both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Now for the West Bank, 
there was put into place a framework that exists today. And so the West Bank had zones. And I don't want you to think of zones as an area. I want you to think of zones as a way to get to self-rule. This was the intent in the Oslo Accords in 1993. And so still today, you will have towns and areas that are zone A. In zone A, the Palestinian people, the Palestinian authority, are the civil authorities in that town or village or area. And they are the security forces in that town or village or area. Great example of this is the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is zone A. Now again, it's not a region, it's just any number of places can be called zone A, meaning the Palestinian Authority are the civil government, the laws, the rules, the mayor, the town council, and the police and security. Zone B are areas or towns or villages where the rule, the, the mayor, the town council, the rules are Palestinian, but the security is Israeli. You see, the point of the Oslo Accords was to give as much self-rule to the Palestinians as possible. This was a win for Yasser Arafat. On the other hand, what Israel needed was a guarantee of security, that there would not be terrorist attacks into Israel's territory. Consequently, they split the civil authority in Zone B in those particular towns and the security to meet both parties' needs. And then finally, there are a few areas that are Zone C. Zone C is where Israel controls both the government and the security in that area. And so these are dotted around in the area. And so over time, since the Oslo Accords, you see more and more Palestinian self-rule. Now, there are many opinions about what's going on in the West Bank. I don't want to wash over it. I want to paint a broader brush because we're going to see a contrast between the West Bank and Gaza. But I want you to realize that there's a framework in place that has progressed with some ups and some downs and lately pretty stable arrangement where Israel can give more and more rule to the Palestinian people and secure its own uh, citizenry. So that's how things were going in 1993 and up to this present time. But something happened in 2007. You may remember that Hamas was a terrorist organization that began a little bit before the Oslo Accords. But in 2007, something significant happened. Hamas was able to win the elections of the people in the Gaza Strip and came into power as the civil authorities. They kicked the Palestinian Authority out. And so ever since 2007, which was the last election in Gaza, Hamas has been the civil rulers of the Gaza Strip. The West Bank is still under Palestinian Authority control in the areas where the Palestinians have self-rule. So in 2007, Israel also, when Hamas, the terrorist organization, gained control of the Gaza Strip, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, put up a barrier, a fence barrier, a fence and a sand road, typical barrier around it for security reasons, realizing correctly at that time that they were vulnerable to attacks from Gaza. What's also significant and is sometimes overlooked is you'll notice that Gaza has obviously a border with Israel, 
but it also has a border with Egypt. If you remember, by this time, Egypt and Israel had, to some extent, normalized relations. Egypt also put up a barrier to uh, prevent people from Gaza, prevent Hamas from moving into Egypt. A little more about that later. So since 2007, this is what Israel has looked like with Palestinian Authority and Israeli control in the West Bank and with Hamas controlling Gaza and Israel having no presence. There are no Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip. There are no Israeli citizens in the Gaza Strip at all. So the, the local players in this battle are Hamas, who initiated this attack, which we'll talk about in a few moments, Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization that has its presence in Lebanon. Probably the easiest way to think about Hezbollah's relationship to Lebanon is to bring it home to America, is thinking about our southern border. When you cross the southern border into Mexico, there are areas of Mexico where the Mexican government does not exercise effective control. The cartels are effectively in control of that portion of the country. That's a good way to think about what's happening between the government of Lebanon and Hezbollah. The government of Lebanon is not strong enough to expel Hezbollah should they wish to, and Hezbollah controls certain areas of the country to use as a platform for their mission, which is the abolition of the state of Israel. The regional players, let's zoom out just a little bit. Iran is one of the great players in this, and one of the great fears is that Iran will become involved directly rather than indirectly. Iran is the greatest supplier and funder of Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah is very well equipped. Hezbollah has precision guided rockets. They have thousands of rockets. They have enough rockets to overwhelm Israelis' Iron Dome defenses. Hezbollah is, because of Iranian support and training and supply and money, a, a significant foe for Israel should they choose to enter this war. Hamas in the south has received tremendous support and training and finances and weaponry from Iran, but not to the extent that Hezbollah has. Consequently, Gaza's, uh, until very recently, Gaza's missiles have been of a poor quality. They have not been guided missiles. And consequently, the conflict with Hamas has looked very different than the conflict with Hezbollah. In the world around them, we'll see that you have Egypt, who is playing a pretty neutral role in this. And one of the questions that gets asked is, given that the Gaza Strip has a border with Egypt, why doesn't Egypt, as a fellow Muslim country, allow at least the refugees to come out of Gaza? Leaving alone the question of why haven't, hasn't Egypt dealt with that issue in the past 50 years, but one question now is that in order to make a humanitarian corridor, the United States and certain other nations are looking for ways to allow refugees, uh, civilians, to leave the Gaza Strip. Egypt has said no. Their official position has been 
that we do not want to be drawn further into this conflict. And I'd like to give you a little history to understand Egypt's position. I'm not, I'm not an apologist for Egypt's position, but I want you to understand why would Egypt do that? Well, if you go back just a little bit in history to the time of the Muslim Brotherhood, so 50, 60 years ago, the Muslim Brotherhood tried to overthrow the Egyptian government. They're a terrorist organization. They're sort of the grandfather of Hamas and many other terrorist organizations in the Middle East. The Muslim Brotherhood felt like that the secular government of Egypt was not zealous enough in their Islamic faith, not zealous enough in their attempt to destroy Israel, and so they attempted to overthrow the government. In fact, Anwar Sadat, who normalized relationship with Israel, was assassinated by Islamic extremists or terrorists who felt like he had betrayed the Islamic cause. Later, in Jordan, Yasser Arafat and his Palestinian Liberation Organization and their fighters and terrorist group took refuge in Jordan as they were having their terrorist battles with Israel. But they too felt like Jordan was ripe to be overtaken and that Jordan wasn't fully committed to this battle with Israel. And so Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation Organization attempted to assassinate the king of Jordan. There ensued a battle between the army of Jordan and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And you just need to realize how awkward this is to find these two Muslim groups fighting one another, both of whom are theoretically committed against Israel. But the, the government of Jordan realized that they were a threat and they killed a number of them and expelled them from the country. Yasser Arafat and the PLO took refuge in Lebanon. So I tell you this history so that you might realize why Egypt might say we do not want the Gazans to come into Egypt even for humanitarian reasons, because Egypt understands that when you get these refugees coming into Egypt and you settle them there, you're going to get Hamas terrorists. And the next thing you know, there'll be rockets firing from Egyptian territory into Israel. Israel will be compelled to respond. And so one of two things will happen. Israel will strike at Hamas missile sites in Egypt, forcing Egypt into an escalated conflict, or Egypt would be forced, in order to keep the broader peace in the Middle East, to go to war with Hamas, which is an extremely awkward position for a fellow Muslim country. And so you can understand Egypt's position, having seen how dangerous these terror terrorist organizations can be, even to the governments of the Muslim countries, and what a position it would put them in to Israel. So I say this merely to explain why is Egypt saying we're not going to open our border with Gaza, even for humanitarian purposes. And I hope that helps a little bit to see the history of why they might say that. One of the things that I would just observe here at this point is you begin to realize how very difficult this is because the people in Gaza are ruled by terrorists. Now, they too are supportive of any anti-Israel position. You saw 
when the attacks happened uh, in October, you saw the celebrations in Muslim countries everywhere, but in the Gaza Strip as well. Nevertheless, they are a bit of a pawn in a much bigger game. They're pawns in one sense that Hamas wants and needs civilians so that when Israel retaliates, it furthers their goal, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But they're also trapped there because their fellow Muslim countries see the dilemma in helping to alleviate the refugee crisis there. And so uh, when we get to the point about how should we pray for this, we need to consider that there are people here who are caught up in forces beyond their immediate control. So the concern here is that some of these regional players, Iran has control of Iraq, Iran and Russia are fundamentally in control of Syria as well, and of course Iran is the, the large player behind this particular unrest and this particular war. So let's move on and talk about specifically what happened on October 7th, 2023, and why is it different than previous attacks? There are two things uh, that happened, and there are a couple of reasons that it's different. The first is this. This chart comes from the Israeli Defense Forces. And each one of the red dots there shows where missiles have landed that were fired out of Gaza. A couple of things to notice here. Rockets are fired out of Gaza on an almost regular basis. They're not guided missiles. Sometimes they blow up in Gaza. Many times they are intercepted by Israeli Iron Dome that shoots them down. And the ones that get through fall randomly as far as they might be able to go, which isn't all that far. The technology has not been great. And so you will occasionally see damage and someone killed, but it's pretty random. They're just firing them at civilian targets, hoping that they could do some damage and strike a blow from their point of view against Israel. But if you look at this, I want you to realize how many of them there are. Thousands were fired in a relatively short period of time Israeli intelligence nor United States intelligence was aware that Gaza had that many missiles. Secondly, these missiles are of a better technology than they have had. You can see how far north, what the range has, uh, has been on these missiles. That's significantly greater than what has been coming out of Gaza before. So during the past few years, more missiles and better technology have been, have been brought into Gaza without security forces realizing that in the West. And so firing them all at once ensured that they would overwhelm the Iron Dome and that they would do more damage. So what is different? More technology, more da uh, dangerous opponent. But at the same time, and some would argue this was the main point and that uh, some military strategists would say that the missiles were actually a, a cover, if you will, for the second phase. And that was a physical attack. They brought in some bulldozers and they attacked in a very planned way uh, to get through that fence. And it's a fence. You, know, you just move through it with a bulldozer. And so then come fighters, terrorists, not regular army type people, but terrorists who have predetermined uh, locations and predetermined instructions, which have been uncovered, to attack 
the Israeli civilian settlements near the Gaza Strip. So in the map on the left, what you'll see are the Israeli settlements, and in red are three that were hit particularly hard. They are Israeli settlements outside the Gaza Strip. They are on Israeli territory. There are no Israeli settlements inside the Gaza Strip. The picture on the right is of one of the kibbutzes that was particularly, uh, particularly destroyed, Kafarazah kibbutz. First of all, what is a kibbutz? In, when Israel began uh, to settle before 1948 in statehood, they would come into a land and it would be a group of people, sometimes a very small group of people saying, let's build a life here. Well, it wouldn't be like you or I going somewhere and saying, well, I'm going to build a house here. Why don't you build a house next to me and we'll make a neighborhood? And why don't you have somebody come in and open a supermarket? And there was not that kind of infrastructure. And so when these settlements were formed, they were very communal in the sense that the people got together and said, look, let's build a dormitory where we all live. And we'll take some of the people who will take care of the children all day, every day, educate them, childcare. The rest will go work the fields. In other words, they came together as a group. They shared everything uh, because they had to in order to build a, a community together. And this is called a kibbutz, and it's a particular model, a way of settling a, an area. These kibbutzes look like the picture on the right. They're, you and I might think of them today as a, a small village. And they're still cooperative in many ways. They still cooperate together to thrive, to educate their children, etc. But they're small villages. And so what happened is Hamas sent people into these villages and I have no pictures, nor will we put up any pictures of what was done. I will simply say that the word atrocity almost doesn't cover it anymore because the word atrocity, like many words, has been overused so much that to say that, there are people that say Israel's been committing atrocities against the Palestinians. But what happened here is of, let me just say, it's of a complete order of magnitude beyond anything that has happened there. It was brutal, it was against civilians, and it reminded a lot of people of Holocaust-type experiences. It was truly atrocious. How can you know these things really happen? Because as is normal uh, on social media, you begin to see all the conspiracy theories. This case is not one that the international community is wondering, well, how bad really was it? because Hamas itself has published accounts, photos, and videos of what happened. You see, what Hamas did here was truly an act of terror, not an act of war, not an act of trying to liberate this land. It was an act of killing Jewish civilians in the most brutal way possible. Did they believe that that would somehow make Israel stop fighting? No, of course not. Did they think that that would somehow achieve a military objective? Of course not. The point of terrorism is to terrorize and to provoke a response. Israel, of course, must respond. And when they do, there will be civilians killed in Gaza. 
those pictures will also go up. And so there were two reasons for doing this. One is the sheer hatred and the brutal killing of Israeli citizens. The second was in the attempt to draw the broader Muslim war into an escalating war to achieve Hamas's objectives of destroying the Jewish people. That is the goal of what happened. And that is why what happened is an order of magnitude greater than anything before. The technology of the missiles and the absolute brutality of the massacre that happened to the Jewish civilians. And the intent is to draw more Muslims into this war. We'll talk again in just a moment about Israel's response to this, but this is the motivation of what's happening. Hezbollah's potential to also get in this war would be for the same reason. It would not be as an attempt to destroy Israel and saying we could actually conquer Israel. It would be in an attempt to escalate this and draw the reluctant Muslim nations around Israel into a greater war. So what happens next? Hamas has battened down for the Israeli response to this. They have prevented, as you're seeing on the news coverage and Israeli releases, but American news coverage as well. Egypt has barred any exit to the south and Hamas has barred civilians from being able to move out of the danger zones. You understand Hamas's strategy, you understand why Hamas needs civilian casualties, and that is indeed what is happening. Hezbollah in the north is, has fired some missiles into Israel, kind of a we're still here and we might get into this war, and so Hezbollah is flirting with the idea of escalating it. Behind all of this is Iran, and Iran orchestrating, uh, and the question is, how far are they prepared to go to orchestrate a broader conflict with Israel? And so the world is waiting now to see, will this spin into a larger conflict, and to who will be the players that spin into this conflict? The world's been complicated a little bit. It's actually has been until recently a little more peaceful in the Middle East. And I want to explain just a little bit some of that dynamic so you understand why it is so dangerous for this to escalate, but also why it's less likely now than it was 50 years ago. So Iran is a Shiite Muslim nation. The rulers are Shiite. It's one of the two great uh, branches of Islam. Iran controls Iraq. Along with Russia, they effectively control Syria. They have funded the rebels against Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And then, of course, they also have exercise a great deal of control in Lebanon. On the more pro, until recently, pro-U.S. side, you have one of the great players, the large Saudi Arabia, who leads a number of other Muslim nations. Egypt and Turkey have fairly neutral relationships with uh, Israel, and they don't necessarily want to get involved. Saudi Arabia has been moving more toward the West. Why would they be doing this? 
They would be doing this because many of the Sunni Muslim nations see Iran as a greater threat to them than Israel. Israel is not perceived, while well, all the nations have an animosity to Israel and to the Jews, you'll see that the nations around them have been looking more to the north and Iran is a more immediate threat to them. None of the nations around there think that Israel wants to conquer them, wants to conquer Egypt, wants to conquer Saudi Arabia. All of the nations around there realize that Iran wants to exercise effective control of all of the Middle East. In fact, in recent times, one of the ways to bring a little bit more stability to the Middle East has been to isolate Iran. And so what you see is that Egypt in 1979 normalized relationships with Israel. Jordan followed in 1994 after the Oslo Accords and normalized relationships with Israel. The Abraham Accords just a few years ago involved the UAE and Bahrain, the Sudan, and Morocco, effectively making a coalition that could play both sides. The, the Arab nations could say, we're going to be at peace with Israel, but we don't like them, and we're surreptitiously putting a bit of a bulwark against Iran. And this has been the dynamic of the Middle East, and it's brought a little more of a balance of power. Hamas's move at this time does two things. First of all, it happened when it happened because October 7th, 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. It was a statement. It was symbolic that just as we struck unexpectedly in 1973, but failed to destroy Israel, here we, the Hamas freedom fighters, have struck Israel again. So in one sense, it was symbolic of that date 50 years before. And secondly, as I said, it was an attempt to disrupt by Iran, an attempt by Iran to disrupt this fragmenting, if you will, of the Muslim world. What has been the immediate aftermath? Well, all of these Arab nations and Muslim nations around have issued formal uh, declarations of their support of the Palestinian people, not Hamas, the Palestinian people and their animosity to Israel. And it's fundamentally put on hold some of those negotiations that have been going on. So from Iran's point of view, it served to effectively disrupt their growing coalition of fellow Muslim countries who are trying to counterbalance Iran's attempts to influence the region. From Hamas's point of view, it's an attempt to spark a broader uprising against Israel and get to the final solution to their problem. Another question that gets asked frequently is what is the biblical response to this attack? What is Israel's response? What should Christians support as a response? Well, first of all, let me say that in pragmatic terms, this is predetermined. I want you to imagine, if you will, that on September 12th, 2001, the day after the September 11th attacks, if George W. Bush or any politician had come out and said, you know what, we don't want to overreact to this. We're not going to attack. We're not going after our enemies. I think we can have a ceasefire and a negotiated solution. 
Well, when I say that, you realize how absurd that was. That was not the mood of the nation. That wasn't considered just at the time. And no American government or politician could survive that. And I would argue rightfully so. In Romans chapter 13, from a Christian perspective, we understand that one of the legitimate functions of government is to punish evildoers and to reward good. Let me phrase that in a little more secular terms, is a government has an obligation to its people for their welfare, but certainly to protect them from the atrocities that have been committed. So from a practical point of view, Israel must respond. Israel must respond in a very big way because of the nature of what happened. This is broadly considered in the world to be have some justice behind it. Now, of course, at the same time, there's the fear of an escalation. But from a Christian point of view, we understand that the nation of Israel, as do its allies, that it must demonstrate to its citizens that it can protect them. Whereas in the past, Israel has had a containment strategy with Gaza. Gaza would occasionally fire missiles. Uh, they would occasionally kill some people. And Israel would strike the missiles. And unfortunately, because the missile locations are in hospitals and people's homes and in residential areas, they would also kill some civilians there. That containment strategy had been going on for a long time. Israel has fundamentally, because of the nature of what happened here, this isn't just the usual shoot a few missiles. This is really up the game. Israel now appears to be moving from a containment strategy, which is no longer viable, to a we must eliminate Hamas as an effective threat to Israel. It's the only thing that the Israeli people will accept as a demonstration that their government can't protect their lives. So that is what is likely to happen. From a Christian point of view, we desire peace in every circumstance. Nevertheless, we also understand that God is interested in justice. At the very least, it seems to me that Israel cannot, the United States could not, no nation can allow such a, an attack on its citizens to go without resolving the issue. And in this case, resolving the issue in the Israelis' point of view is finding a way to deal with Hamas. Why does this become problematic? Because Hamas's point of view is that's exactly what we want and we'll make sure there are plenty of civilians here so that this can be escalated. The challenge for Israel is how to satisfy the just demands of its people and the legitimacy of its government without allowing this to escalate into a broader conflagration that very few people in the Middle East want. One other question, and I'll close with this, is, is from a Christian point of view, is this the beginning of the end times? Is this going to escalate into something that looks like a Christian view of the end times? Christians have different views on not whether or not the book of Revelation is true, but exactly how might it play out? What would it look like? In the United States, not everywhere in the world, but in the United States, probably the most prominent view of how the book of Revelation will play itself out in real terms is the premillennial, what's generally called a premillennial view of the end time. So we live somewhere in here, 
in the church age, the time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And according to this view, people would read Revelation chapter 4, the visions in chapter 4 through chapter 19, which are commonly called a time of trial or tribulation, would read those as a literal seven-year period where there will be war in the world, where an anti-Christ figure will raise up and be a political and military figure, where a group of nations will come together and they will be focused on Israel and they will be focused on destroying the Jewish people. Again, this is one way to read Revelation. All Christians believe it's true. The question is how? The premillennial view understands a specific sequence of events. And so you'll see this tribulation and just before the second coming of Christ, you will see the nations of the world surrounding Jerusalem. Well, let me pause for just a second. I'm gonna paint with a broad brush here. We've done some series before about Islamic views of the end times, but broadly speaking, Muslims think that in the end times, the Jews will be destroyed in a great battle between the Muslims and the Jews, and Islam will rule the world. One particular view is that a figure called the Mahdi will return, and Jesus will return with him, and Jesus will be a Muslim and say, you misunderstood. I was always a Muslim, a follower of Allah, and you Christians and you Jews misunderstood. They will come back, gather this great army, and battle against all the foes of Islam, the Jewish people, that he will rule on the earth and then there will be great judgment. The balanced scales of judgment according to the Quran are your good deeds, do they outweigh your evil deeds and do you go on to destruction or do you go on to uh, eternal delights? Well, given that you have this Islamic view of the end times involving this conflict, now let's go back to the Battle of Armageddon. Here's a, a snippet from Revelation 16 talking about the enemies of God, the Antichrist and the powerful nations around come together against Jerusalem. And so when you look at these two things, you can see that if that's your view of the end times, you can see the Islamic view of the end times. Think Hamas and Hezbollah wanting to destroy the Jewish people. And the particular reading of the Christian end times is that Christ will return when the enemies of God, the Antichrist and his armies, attack the people of God at the Battle of Armageddon. And when you put those things together, it's easy for Christians to look at this situation, and many believe that this is indeed the case, that something like what is happening now in the Middle East will spin up to a broader worldwide conflict that will focus on the Jews and Jerusalem and will inaugurate the second coming of Christ in the end times. And so there are Christians now who are, are convinced of this, and I understand that point of view. It's an orthodox point of view. I'm not saying it's correct. I'm simply saying if that's your point of view, you can see why you would 
see this as potentially kicking off an end time scenario. I feel compelled to point out to you that people have felt that way before. I don't want to minimize what's happening in the Middle East. I simply want us not to be so invested in a particular way this is going to happen that we miss the forest for the trees, if you will. There's no question, regardless of your end times uh, beliefs, regardless of the way you think God will play this out, that there is, these are fundamental Christian beliefs, there is evil in the world. And there is no doubt that on October 7th, 2023, we saw one of the faces of evil in the world. It's undoubtedly true that Israel has not done everything right in this situation either. And so we as Christians seek justice, not partisanship. But at the same time that I say that, I realize there are people in the world who want to bring a moral equivalence to this. And they want to say, look, Israel's done some bad stuff. Hamas has done some bad stuff. If this were a football game, we might say, well, there were two fouls on the play. They're offsetting penalties. That is not a biblical view of what's happening here. These are not offsetting penalties. There is not a moral equivalence between what happened on October 7th and what's happening in the world. As Christians, we pursue peace and we pursue justice. At the same time, we have a very clear idea of what is evil and what is good. And finally, perhaps the most important question is how should we pray? In the words of Psalm 122, we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I believe that as unlikely as it may seem to us, that there can be peace, that hearts can be softened, that leaders can turn their hearts toward peace of whatever stripe, Christian, Muslim, Jews, as unlikely as that seems to us, we as Christ followers realize that our God is able to do the impossible. And I believe that we should pray for peace. I believe that we should pray for justice, that God would bring an awareness of justice and that those who do evil would be removed from this situation because the evil is being done not just toward the Jewish people, but toward the Palestinian people as well. I think we need to pray for the children in the Middle East, whether they're Israeli children, whether they're Palestinian children, they are caught up in something that they did not create. And let us pray that our God will guard them and protect them. And finally, let us as Christians pray that God will act in our nation and the other nations of the world to turn the hearts of our leaders toward peace, not appeasement, not blind retribution, but toward a just and lasting peace in the Middle East.